Thanks for tuning in to Culture Car ATX. I'm your co-host, Michael Ward Jr., here with Donald Scott II. Our goal at Culture Crawl ATX is to change the world one conversation at a time. We hope you enjoy this episode. As we think about supporting those here in our community, those that are around us, uh, we really have to think back what are the right steps that we want to do. Uh, on our previous episode, we were talking about uh, venture capitalism and engaging in our society and really addressing the problem when it comes down to those um, that are Black, Hispanic, people of color, when they're leading these businesses, um, leading these opportunities, not getting the financial support uh, that they deserve. Um, so today we wanted to talk about doing good business and what does that really mean for our community members. And I'll start us off with a highlight from this past week. So on Monday, I attended the Black Fund Award Show at the Paramount Theater here in Austin, Texas. And part of the award show was highlighting 21 different Black-led organizations that were the first awardees of the Black Fund, uh, which is housed in Austin Communities Foundations. Um, and just being in that environment, looking at those nonprofits, winning different organizations, and, you know, we're very blessed to have been an awardee as well. Um, so shout out to the Black Fund and Austin Communities Foundation for sure. Uh, but just being in that room, it was great to be there, but it also highlighted the, the challenge that still exists today. How there are Black-led organizations that are doing great work that don't receive the, the funding, the resources, the, the capacity building that they need to go and, and do the work. Despite their experiences, despite their resume, right? Despite who they are as individuals who've been through some of these problems that they're looking to solve, whether it's around uh, whether, whether it's around poverty, whether it's around education, whether it's around healthcare, whether it's around criminal justice. I mean, you name it, there's so many different problems within our society that those that are from underrepresented groups can really lean into to address those challenges. So thinking about the 21 different Black-led organizations that are receiving this funding, it's great to see. However, it also shows that, oh, there's a challenge that, that's here where they are unable to truly get the support that they need to go above and beyond. So when we think about doing good business, right, we could definitely take this in doing good business as solutions and, and products and services that are solving problems, but then also investing in, in areas and spending your time and energy around equitable solutions, right? Solutions that are being spearheaded by people that may not have the support that the resources, that the time that they need to really see their solution come into reality. So to start us off you know, today as a question is, as we think about venture capitalism, as we think about supporting Black, Hispanic, people of color, Indigenous-led organizations, you know, what does doing good business mean for you all and how can we really lean into that in our society? Yeah, so, you know, for me, doing good business uh, involves, you know, doing what we've always done just a little bit differently. You know, you still have to have product market fit. Uh, you still have to understand your consumer. You still have to show that uh, you're going to create good margins and a product that people need. And uh, more importantly, most importantly, that you're solving a problem. That you're solving a real problem. Um, the, the issue 
has been that the archetypes of success that we've all come to accept uh, have predominantly come from the same communities. And so when you talk about my world of venture capital, everybody's looking for the next Mark Zuckerberg to walk through the door or the next Elon Musk or Jack Dorsey or even Elizabeth Holmes, who had to put on a lot of uh, a lot of airs in order to, uh, you know, get in the door herself. Uh, but these are the archetypes. These are the expectations of what uh, people who can do good business uh, look like and where they come from and what their credentials are. And I would argue that uh, Facebook wasn't necessarily solving uh, a problem that uh, is leaving a legacy of goodness uh, behind. And so, you know, I've been in the impact space for a really long time, both as an entrepreneur and, and now as an investor. And so when I think about what are the problems of our day, what are the problems of our age, of our generation uh, that we really need to rally around and solve, uh, it's not about how to get more people to look at an ad. That is not the problem of our generation. You know, the problems of our generation are climate change, it's economic immobility, it's the racial and gender wage and wealth gap, uh, it's access to healthcare and the fact that uh, black and brown people have uh, healthcare outcomes uh, that are far, far worse uh, than their white peers, especially around uh, maternity and, and infant mortality, uh, things that a industrial nation should not be dealing with. And yet here we are. Um, all of these are existential threats to the health and happiness of our communities. And there are entrepreneurs out there who see these problems, who are trying to solve these problems. And a lot of them are coming from the communities that are bearing the brunt of these problems. And yet we see that less than 1% of venture capital continues to go to black founders, less than 2% uh, go to uh, Latino founders uh, and women are still on an uphill climb to, to get a commensurate amount of, uh, of venture capital and, and debt funding. It's like, we all know those numbers, so we don't really need to belabor uh, what those are. Uh, but for me, you know, doing, doing good business means doing good. It means re, reevaluating what problems that we're trying to solve uh, and then changing the archetypes of who we expect to come through that door uh, with the answers and the solutions on how to solve those problems. Yeah, you guys are making really good points, uh, of course, and that's why we're on Culture Crawl ATX. Um, so, you know, as a founder trying to build what we would consider an impact business around removing the transportation barrier for busy parents by, you know, and then unlocking opportunity for their kids. Um, we originally are thinking, or originally were thinking future opportunity for the kid, you know, carpool. But as we've been having different conversations because we're fundraising and like trying to fit into thesis, um, there's the conversation around sustainability. Uh, there's the conversation around pollution and emissions. There's the conversation around future of work and equitable access for working parents, specifically the mothers who carry the burden for the most part of getting kids you know, to and from school and around town. Um, and then there's a conversation of allowing families and communities in general to access the resources that are being made available by the nonprofits 
that support the communities. And um, and one of the the other topics came up as it pertains to like the demographic of your entrepreneur. We were talking with uh, some leaders at the Keller Center at Princeton University, and they said that it's clear, you know, some number, I don't remember percentages and the like, but it was basically like a vast majority of Black founders have a business focused on trying to make the world better. And it's not necessarily their world, right? It's the world. Because if we can make the world better, then we know that we'll have a better experience. Um, but to your point, you know, the the <laughs> people raising the most money are those talking about how long they can get you to scroll on your mobile uh, device, which I, I think I'm going to start calling a personal entertainment device because they're not really telephones anymore. Um, they're like a little, a, a little, you know, screen where you can serve yourself what you are interested in. And, and everything is available to you in the palm of your hand. Um, but we continue to still have these existential threats, as you mentioned. Um, it's, 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 really, it's really interesting, right? Because when you're, when you are people, so uh, Cosmo and Michael, you guys don't know each other super well, but like the thing that you two both are focused on intently is solutions. Right. We can all talk about challenges and we know why the challenges exist. We see the challenges in our daily lives. But um, there are just a handful of people, I think, that are always solely focused on creating a solution to a problem. Um, and it's it's that idea of root cause analysis and then how can we make it better that I think sets apart um, what impact you can actually create. And so, you know, I just say thank you to you both, both, you know, trying to build solutions, um, having built solutions, and then now trying to fund new ideas and, and solutions by those who are focused on making the world a better place. Um, I'm, I'm going to throw this into you, Michael, and this is related to some of the business that we talked about before, but I just saw an article that said Biden has um, signed... Uh, something related to broadband and the investment is one of the largest ever, but it, it also mentioned that HBCUs predominantly sit in broadband deserts. And I thought that was really interesting because I remember when, maybe when we first met or, you know, however many years ago, you were focused on um, broadband for all in the state of Texas. Right. And it's like, you saw that years ago, and now there's a push for it. And now there's money. But now, the, though the money has been allocated, now, again, the fight is to ensure that at least some of the money goes to those communities who are most impacted by lack of access. Um, and, you know, it's like a <laughs> it's a cycle. But at the same time, it's good to know that there are people who are focused on ensuring that resources reach the right people. Well, you know, a lot of work that we do is specifically tied to removing barriers. So, yes, I'm all about solutions the best that we can. And a lot of times when we think about solutions is removing whatever barriers preventing somebody from getting to that next step, whatever that next step looks like.
So when it comes down to internet access, so for those that know, my background is technology. So we help people get inside the tech space, right? That's the main thing that we do. Uh, so when it comes down to whether or not you have access to the internet, whether you have access to actually physical devices, and whether you have access to skills inside the tech space, can you develop and be self-sustaining to afford to live here in Austin or wherever your city is? Um, so here in Austin, we do have HBCU. Houston Tulsa University is the only HBCU here in Austin. And Houston Tillerson is on the east side of Austin. So immediately when you go from the west side of Austin to the east side of Austin, your connectivity significantly decreases. And I've witnessed that with all the different types of community events and citywide events that Houston Tillerson has hosted. It's been really challenging seeing how this is such a, a um, what's the word, a monumental figure, institution, location here in the city, just given all the work that they do. However, they're located in an area that is strictly limiting the overall value and positivity and benefit that they can have in that area. And it's been like that for years, right? So a lot of what I like about the work, the work that you're doing, Kasim, is supporting those entities that are moving those solutions forward. That's exactly what we try to do. Um, and we are a 5-1-C-3, so we, we're not funding other businesses, things of that nature, but we collaborate, right? We're always thinking about how can we leverage research to have a bigger impact in those areas. So if you're doing something great, how can I bring that to the table so that collectively we can know who has the best expertise to leverage to make it easier for the end user, whoever that end user is. Um, and I see that happening here in Austin more and more, uh, but definitely not at the speed at which it needs to happen to actually overcome the problem, right? So as we think about what's being pushed from the federal level down to the state level, down to the local level, it just goes back to time, right? So how long is it going to take to administer these resources, to have them implemented correctly, and then ensure that where they are being implemented, it actually values and gives support to the right entity and to the right individual that needs that support. Yeah, so you're, 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 talking yeah. About a, you're talking about a legacy of, of infrastructural racism and redlining. And I live here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and the story here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina rhymes with just about every other uh, market. We've got an east and a west side, and running right through the middle of our great city is Highway 52. And on the west side of Highway 52, you've got Innovation Quarter, you've got co-working spaces, you've got investors and lawyers, and you've got economic development offices, and you've got the Center for Regenerative Medicine and Wake Forest Baptist, and you've got all of this investment that has gone into this sector, into this 12 square block radius. And you hop right across Highway 52, and you have poverty, and you have food deserts, and you have other infrastructural deserts. And where Highway 52 was built was right smack through a thriving Black Wall Street, which are no longer exists. And that's the story from place to place to place to place. So when we look at reinvesting into infrastructure, because it's pretty obvious that what we invest into is what builds our world. And so we've built this world. 
And so when we think about reinvesting into infrastructure, whether it's broadband internet or rebuilding Black Wall Street, we have to do so with a sense of urgency. And that sense of urgency only comes from a perspective and a point of view of a word that's a dirty word for a lot of people, it's reparations. We have to repair the legacy of infrastructural racism that has created all of these deserts of things that I now consider a human right. Broadband internet is a human right at this point. It should be a public utility. There should not be private companies that are benefiting off of it because it's necessary. It's as necessary as, as having a, a, a fresh food store next to you. It's as necessary as having a smartphone. All of these things are critical uh, for us to live our daily lives in a way that allows us to compete for the resources in the economy. And so, you know, there has to be a sense of urgency. There has to be a targeted uh, reinvestment into these communities. And it has to be done through uh, the lens of reparations, of repairing what we've built. I think we did a... Um... If I remember correctly, we did a podcast on reparations. Um, I'll have to go back and listen to that one, especially if you're thinking about it. When, and what I'm going to say is, you know, we're talking about investment dollars and people think investment dollars VC. But the idea of investing via federal infrastructure into the communities that were destroyed by federal infrastructure is repairing a harm. Um, I, actually, I was just listening to my buddy talk to his tenant and the AT&T guy at their apartment. And the AT&T guy said that he couldn't find the coax cables to bring AT&T into his specific unit. Then there was a conversation about how maybe Verizon or Comcast is the provider. You know, and they're going around in these circles. And I'm thinking to myself, I can't imagine not having internet right now in my unit. Absolutely and 100% agree that the, the access to the internet is a fundamental and ne necessary utility. It's like if your water is off or if your heat is out, if you don't have access to the internet in today's age, you can't work in some, depending on your, profession, right? You can't work. Uh, you may not be able to pay a necessary bill. You may not be able to order food uh, because, you know, everybody is on apps ordering, ordering uh, food. And then if your internet isn't available, you're probably in a place where your service is poor. And, and you know, we're on the South side and, and uh, my service isn't very good here. Uh, <laughs> And I'm like, come on, guys, what are we doing here? Like, it's the well, 21st century, I mean, and we're we're a major nation. Even even more than that, what if something happens, like a pandemic, and your kids can't go to school, mm. and you don't have broadband internet, right? So we saw a massive reinvestment into uh, laptops and hotspots that had to come through our educational system, which is poorly underfunded and always has been. And we had to scramble because we didn't have the infrastructure to support distance learning. And these things are luxuries until they're not. And you know, one of one of my one of my uh, actually the last startup that I sold was uh, our technology was virtualizing clinical trials. And you cannot believe how difficult it was. Maybe you can uh, to sell to pharmaceutical companies the need to virtualize their clinical trials and not kick off every clinical trial 
with some big conference in Boca Raton where 400 scientists and everybody comes into a convention center and, and do their thing and learns the protocols and then, you know, goes out and brings patients into a hospital and those, you know, everything was place-based and gathering-based. And they wouldn't, they couldn't envision a future where that wouldn't be the way that things happen because it was profitable and it was working until it stopped working because we could no longer have those gatherings. And so within six months, all of a sudden, you know, we rapidly scaled the acquisition because we had something that they needed, which was a virtualization solution. So we were there, we had competitors who were there and we all got bought up because we we're in the right place at the right time. But when you're talking about public infrastructure and things like education, there's not that luxury of innovation and entrepreneurship and private equity who's going to come in and throw money at it. It's us. <laughs> it's our money. It's our tax dollars. And it's our politicians who decide how to earmark and, and allocate that funding. And because there's not forward thinking, because there's not thinking about these communities, and we're not even just talking about black and brown communities, we're talking about rural farm communities, white communities that also bared the brunt of not having access to distant learning. So now all of a sudden you've got kids who are one or one and a half grades behind. And now that we're back in school, I have many school teachers and, and other people, psychologists and counselors who are telling me all the time that they're seeing arrested development for kids coming back to school, that they are not where they should be in terms of being able to interact socially with one another. And that is, you know, that's a, that's gonna be a generational legacy from this pandemic period. Now we can point directly to our inability uh, to rapidly create infrastructure that supported uh, learning in the face of of an unforeseen event. Um, so you know, I just I want to just call us back to even two years ago uh, in terms of where we where we focus our money and our time and the infrastructure and how that affects our children uh, in the face of uh, something that we can't expect to happen. Actually, uh, Michael and I were volunteering. Well, Michael hosted the event. Um, distributing computers to students right as the pandemic, uh, right as we were learning that not all kids would go back to school, I think. Um, and while we were handing out and distributing the computers, you know, I was there volunteering and I was like, uh, oh yeah, you know, I'm doing a good job. I'm providing uh, devices to children who may not have access. And then as we were winding down, you know, I started talking and I was like, oh, you know what, actually, <clears throat> I have three boys at home and I do not have three computers at home. So I'm, I am, I, you know, as a part of the, I don't know, upper middle class, at least, uh, I was in a position where I was not capable of handling the pandemic without the help of, uh, autumn HQ shout out. Um, and so just the idea that, resourcing needs to be available and then just deciding who are those that are in need because i think many times um the people who aren't in immediate need aren't thinking about those who are in need because and i'll say this for myself i was like oh you know i work i have the means to provide I have education. So, you know, like I've done my job. I, I worked hard. This is why I have my stuff. Not that I'm saying, you know what I mean? But, you know, you start thinking you're, you're hot shit until you're like, oh, you know what? Actually, I am in the same position as these, as, you know, the group that I call myself helping. Uh, and, and I remember that being very eye-opening about how hard it must be 
for those who have even less. Uh, because, you know, sometimes empathy, empathy isn't necessarily readily available all the time um, when we're constantly busy and, and just constantly being told that either you have all that you need or you'll never have enough anyway, or the people who don't have enough didn't work that hard, right? I think that's a kind of consistent underlying narrative as it pertains to why some people don't quote unquote receive the same support. Um, and the same is true sometimes when we're talking about the, the archetype of who should receive assistance and the archetype of those who shouldn't need assistance. Um, there's always this concept that, you know, you shouldn't need help because you have X or you need help because you didn't do Y. Um, and that that is overall, right? So whether we're talking about access to opportunity, access to VC funding, access to healthcare, um, maybe we have to rethink how we feel about who, what, how we feel about deserve and that, that concept. Yeah, I, I call it the meritocracy myth. So, you know, we have this idea, especially in the, the United States, and we hear it all the time, you know, you have to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. The origin of that is it's impossible to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. That is the actual saying. And somehow, somehow we have perverted that in our culture to saying that's what we've got to do. So we instill into kids and folks starting businesses and other people that A, you've got to do it on your own, right? So there's, there's this rugged individuality that's been baked into the American culture since kind of the beginning. Uh, and, and two, that if you get there, if you are successful, that you did it on your own. Which the flip side is, if you're not successful, then you couldn't do it or you didn't do it or you're lazy or you can't do it, right? That you are less than. But I would challenge anybody, and I've done this in many, many different rooms and many different arenas with lots of different types of people and including myself, because I sit here, you know, I was born into poverty. My mom was a single mom. I'm the son of two immigrants, right? I had to hustle since I was 12 years old to help my mom put food on the table. And I sit here as a privileged person. I have privilege. And nobody who's made anything of themselves with that has a shred of intellectual honesty will tell will tell you that there wasn't somebody or some people in their lives that opened a door for them or who said, I believe in you, or who gave them some sort of resource or connected them to someone who could help them. We are all standing on the shoulders of our ancestors, of our elders, of our teachers, of a counselor, of a coach, of a mentor, of a boss of a spouse, of somebody along the way who gave us that boost, whatever that boost looks like. So none of us, none of us got to where we are on our own. And so it's that myth of a level playing field, of a meritocracy, of a bootstrap type mentality, and sort of the, the idea that you have to do it on your own and people who are successful did it on their own which plays into VC very, very strongly. So that idea of, of uh, you know, an intrepid entrepreneur 
who's kind of, you know, fighting against all the tides and they, they do it themselves and, uh, and then they reap the rewards. So we're talking about, you know, multi-billion millionaires and billionaires and unicorn companies and all these people that become billionaires and it's about individual success. And so we hold up the CEO as this shining beacon of individual success and a self-referential uh, proof that our system is good because look at, you know, look at this person, usually look at this white guy who did it all by himself. And now he's a billionaire. And that's what we should all strive to do. And that's been sort of the, the archetype of entrepreneurship and venture capital. And it keeps uh, self-referencing uh, and self-supporting uh, that myth, that mythological narrative. And so kind of going back to something you were saying, Donald, about overwhelmingly Black and Brown uh, entrepreneurs starting businesses that are trying to make the world a better place. I believe, based on my own lived experience and the conversations that I've had, that that comes back to our own idea of what success looks like, which is about community. So when you when you look at Black Wall Street, when you look at HBCUs, when you look at Latino communities, when we think about success, we're thinking about the success of our community. That narrative of individual of of yeah, you're in a bad position, but you got to get out of it. And then when you get out of it, you know, you did it on your own and now you're successful. That narrative doesn't play, right? The narrative that plays for us is let me start a business that can create intergenerational wealth and community wealth. And let's build a black wall street or let's build, you know, a, a, a corridor for Latino businesses where we can all do business with each other and lift each other up, right? Let's talk about education and getting our kids educated because we've had to band together our culture Traditionally, our culture going back to where we come from was about community. We got to make it together or none of us are going to make it. And that, I think, parlays itself into the types of businesses that we start and this idea that it's about community. And, and let me um, let me let you all in on a secret. We're not separate. We are not individuals. We are a, a organism ecosystem. We all breathe the same air, right? And unless these guys uh, get to go to Mars and live on another planet, climate change is going to affect them. So when we're talking about climate change, we're talking about pandemics. Those are the events that remind us that we are all one. Right? And I'm not talking about this like woo-woo, you know, like spiritual thing. I'm just talking about we're all swimming in the same air goop. We all got to breathe it. You know, we're all, we're, we're all uh, susceptible to viruses. We're all susceptible to, to the coastline disappearing and the ice melting and the temperature rising, right? There's, there's no amount of money that's going to protect anybody from these existential crises. And so why are we spending our time trying to solve a problem uh, about getting people's attention? Because that's the new currency. The, the biggest currency that we're trading right now is our attention. And I'm telling you, we are going to not survive as a species if we don't rapidly turn our attention to these existential crises that affect all of us and remember that we are not separate, that we are one species, we are one community on the only planet that we've got. And if we don't start solving these problems and investing in solving these problems, uh, then we're no longer going to be a species. And you're speaking music to my ears. Everything you're saying, I've spoke about it, feel about it, and definitely see how there's a system, right? This ideology that is capitalism has benefited specifically white males in our society. 
And when other individuals, and this connects to our previous episode, Donald, is that when other members try to follow that ideology, it doesn't work for them because it's not designed for them, right? So that's where looking at other systems, other opportunities, other ways to generate a successful business, generate income, increase your revenue, build relationships, really goes back to the community, which really just means the family going back to us working within our households, making sure everybody is safe, everybody is strong, everybody is secure, everybody has all of their needs met. And once you check up all those boxes, okay, great. Now you can leave the household, right? Now you can go out into the community and start to build up there based on everything you've learned in this household. And that goes back to, the, you know, we could go back into the motherland, thinking about villages, thinking about towns, thinking about us being more unified as a, as a, as a people, right? Versus this individualistic mentality where the only way for me to succeed is to step over you. And that's one of the reasons why when I first came a part of the tech space, I really didn't like the tech industry because that was a very similar methodology that I felt and experienced within Oracle. And I specifically left corporate America to create a different mentality, a different narrative within the tech space and saying, oh, you can be successful, you can be engaged, and you can still do good, right? Like you don't have to choose between transactional relationships, not being ethically sound, um, harassing somebody, or doing anything that, that you would not want to be brought to life or do anything in a negative, but we can actually be collaborative. We can support those that come from more difficult backgrounds because they have a greater understanding of the need that needs to be had to solve that problem. And it's okay if we work with people who don't look like us because they're just gonna come with a different perspective that we don't know about. And by us doing those things, then we can truly see a, a flourishing, you know, see a flourishing country versus what we see now in different cities here in America. I'm just focusing on America for right now. But what we see now in different cities is different levels of happiness, right? Different levels of joy because some individuals have access to resources and others do not. And when they do try to go and get those resources, they're hit with barrier after barrier after barrier that is specifically designed to wear you out or to reprogram your methodology where now you are no longer engaging with your family or the people that are supporting you, but you're listening to what's, what else is out there into the, into the mainstream and saying, okay, let me go ahead and do this on my own. And we see that today, which is why a lot, not rephrase, we see that today where this is the reason why some businesses that are black and Hispanic are closing down or are no longer to be successful because they're not thinking about success or attaining success in a different way that truly benefits and aligns with their lived experiences. Yeah, there's a, you know, we see a movement towards, you know, distributed autonomous organizations. We see a movement towards blockchain uh, and it, kind of all of these ideas that we have to decentralize the power and the decision-making, and we have to do it in an equitable way. But at the same time, they're built within these systems where a lot of times people of color are not positioned to take advantage of these new technologies. So as new innovations 
come to the fore that could solve some of these problems, it's still the same people who get to invest in it. And one of the most disgusting examples that I've seen is the marijuana industry, is the cannabis industry, where you've got new millionaires every single day, and almost all of them are white, they're white males, while at the same time, you've got people of color still rotting in prison for having a joint or having an ounce on them, right? And that's just like kind of the quintessential infrastructural problem that keeps perpetuating itself, that even when solutions are available to start creating a shared community wealth around new technologies, uh, we are consistently as communities from the black and brown communities not uh, in a position to take advantage of that or to profit from that and, and, and are actually having that profit built on our backs, on our incarceration system, on our lack of education, uh, on sort of the foundations uh, of, of the bricks that were laid, you know, hundreds of years ago. Uh, and that is why, you know, it's, there has to be reparations as a point of view across virtually everything that we do in the economic space. And it's not just enough to have a DEI initiative or to say, we're an equitable organization, or we wanna, we wanna lean into equity, or we wanna view everything through an equity lens. Like I've, you know, I, I've been around uh, this joint for you know, enough time to know that that's complete BS, right? It's all corporate whitewashing. And, and you would, and like this is this is the bone that I have to pick kind of with with the diversity thing, uh, because, you know, I'm I've been fundraising for my venture fund for three years. You know, I, I was I was told no hundreds of times before I got to. Yes, that's just kind of typical in, in fundraising. Now, the reasons I was told no were pretty disturbing, uh, you know, but that's OK. I kind of know going into it. Right. But I built inroads with all different types of communities. I've got an amazing pipeline of black and brown entrepreneurs who are solving real community problems. And I work to get that. And my partners work to get that, not just over the last three years, but over the last 15 to 20 years by building my reputation, by working my butt off. A lot of times, unfortunately, sacrificing relationships in order to get to where I am now, right? I put in the work and I am continuously asked by other VCs, by corporations who want to quote, lead with equity, Right, corporations who are coming to me and saying, "Hey, we're going to have this early stage uh, accelerator, and we really want to find early stage companies we can invest into. That means profit from. Who are coming from these communities? We want to lead with equity. So why don't you work with us for free to help us do that? Hey, we know you got a venture fund and you got a pipeline. Why don't you share that pipeline for free? Right? They are not." asking to compensate me on project, on work. They're not compensating me for the three years, 15 years, 20 years that I've been putting in to get to where I am. Their expectation, and I've been told this and they don't, they don't understand how this comes off, that I know you're passionate about this work. Yeah, I'm passionate about this work because I've been a victim of the system for the last 20 years. This is not passion for me. It might be passion for you. For me, it is my lived experience. And you are telling me, that I am worthy enough to come to because I have expertise, but I'm not worthy enough to pay for that expertise. And I had a sales mentor who used to tell me, never give a customer something for free because that's how much they will value it. So if you were telling me that you value diversity and equity, and you're also telling me in the same breath that you're not going to pay me for my time, and you're gonna clutch your pearls when I ask you how much you're going to pay me, then it's all performative, right? So we've got to get beyond 
this idea of diversity and equity inclusion as a charity exercise. This is not charity, right? This is business. And I'm telling you that the four to $5 trillion of buying power that rests in the hands of the new middle class, of the new uh, highly educated Henrys, high earners who aren't rich yet, who have money in their pocket, who have disposable income, who come from black and brown communities, they're gonna connect with the brands and the solutions that can speak authentically to them. So if you're not investing in them, and if you're not paying people who can get you to them, then you're not doing good business. So this idea that we are a charity case, it's gotta go. It's gotta go. So let's back up a second, because I, I agree with you and I navigate and I share a very similar situation with you. Um, so I'm curious from your perspective and based on your lived experience, how do you navigate that? And, and how has those conversations been as you navigate that in order to secure more, more partners that want to be a part of this building journey with you? Well, I work with the partners who pay me. That's how I navigate it. And I work with uh, the partners who have lived experience because it's never the ones who actually have lived experience who come to me with a lack of value, right? It's always the institutions. It's always the embedded ones that see this as their chance to be a savior, as their chance to put their brand or their logo next to a diversity initiative that they're getting paid for, that their company's gonna profit for, uh, while you know pulling in people of color to work for free because it's their passion. And so I'm just saying no. And I, I used to say yes, because I did care about the problem, right? But now I don't say yes anymore. And what they normally do is they then go to a more junior person or somebody who will say yes. And, they, and unfortunately, they do get people participating for free because they can find those people. What I'm telling everybody is we've got to band together and start saying no, like as a unit. No, value my time, value my lived experience. Like when I go into communities and I work and I do diversity programs and I'm smack dab in the middle of a room and all of them are white males and they're bankers and they're VCs and I got to tell them what's up. Like, you don't think that that's deep emotional labor for me? It is, it, it squeezes me out, it burns me out. And I'm there because that's what I'm here to do. And they're paying me to do that, but that's what I'm here to do, right? And so even, even asking somebody who, let's say, is a, is a successful Black woman who's in venture capital, hey, wanna, I want you to come in and help us uh, with our healthcare initiatives because we're going to invest in companies that are going to solve this problem that's, that Black women are six times more likely to die in childbirth. And we, we want you uh, to be involved in that, but we're not going to pay you for your time. They're not just saying, I'm not going to pay you for your time. They're saying, I'm not going to pay you for the emotional labor and the trauma of talking about this issue that hits you right where you are. Like we're talking about you. We're talking about your possibility of dying in a hospital. And they don't get that. So I navigate it by saying no. And I only say yes to those who are serious. And I only think they're serious if they're willing to pay me. <laughs> I think that that part of the podcast should be its own part or that we need to like direct people to the minute of that uh, of that message. Um, so, so personal story is I used to be like all in I and D, right? And I'm not throwing anybody under the bus. I'm not talking shit about anybody. But 
the value of my time relative to the benefit to the organization that I bring is wildly undervalued. And then to think that we have full organizations inside of corporate America doing human resources work for free because we know that we're the only ones who can create the solution for ourselves, we're the only ones who care about ourselves, is being taken advantage of. Um, and so I kind of stopped. I quit all my boards. I don't do IND stuff anymore. I'll talk to people personally um, and I'll, I'll share stories with leaders that I know, but I'm kind of against now doing work for free when it's relative to talking to minorities about what it's, not even talking to minorities, bringing minorities to the table for us to then be the diverse. And I was, I was com kind of complaining about this because you, know, you can't really complain about this conversation because people don't get it. But if you call me diverse, what are you? Like, you know what I mean? Like, what are you? Because I'm just me. I'm a guy with a mom and dad and I got a sister and I work hard and I have friends. I'm, I'm passionate about volunteering, yes, but I'm not necessarily passionate about volunteering when the topic of discussion is black men being murdered because, or black boys being murdered, because I'm one of them. I have three boys. I'm not, this is not like, I just want to do this work. <laughs> I don't wake up thinking, oh, you know, life is peachy. Oh, and they just murdered some black dude again. That has no effect on me or my well-being or what conversations I have to have with my children or how I have to navigate my society. It's the reason I left America, actually. But like, if you say things like that, people be all salty and whatnot. So I'll say this too, and, and then I'll, because if I go too far, I'll, it'll become sideways. But I told someone recently when they asked me how another organization can reach out to its Black community that may not necessarily feel invited. I said, one, intentional partnerships. Two, cash. Three, time-bound and time-based commitment because it's not going to be tomorrow. And four, don't make the people who are excluded do the work, right? Why do I have to host events for me to be invited into your circle. If you don't want me there, just be honest, but don't tell me that you do want me there and then tell me I got to throw the party and pay for it myself. What kind of shit is that? Because if I want to have a party and throw it myself, I'm going to bring my friends with me because clearly we not friends because you want me to throw you a party. You know what I mean? So like, it's so annoying. <laughs> and then I'll, I'll just leave on this part. Um, I, I know I said I would stop, but because it, it, it's it's overwhelming in, in the entire lived experience. <clears throat> I told my co-founder that the narrative that I refuse to accept is that the only successful startups are those that can bootstrap, right, or have wealthy friends and family until they reach revenue. Because... There has to be the experience where someone has a really good idea 
but does not come from independent wealth. So the idea that that like, you know, organizations, angels, whoever will not talk to me because we are not yet making a hundred thousand dollars a year or like you know, even ten even ten thousand dollars a month, whatever, five thousand dollars a month. You know what I mean? Like I, I appreciate that barrier, but look at the market that I'm telling you. Look at my overall success criteria, my like my success story. You know what I mean? And and I'm when I say me, I'm not talking about me only but I'm talking about people who represent success and excellence and then are constantly told no because of the set of criteria, which only blocks us because of a significant wealth gap, which we're not going to change the wealth gap. My, I'm not gonna change the wealth gap today so that now you can say, oh yeah, I should have had an uncle or a nephew or a cousin that was able to give me $500,000. That That's outrageous. <sighs> okay, anyway, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's, again, that's the infrastructure, you know, and, and the kicker in my lived experience, because this just happened to me last week, which is pro probably why I'm so passionate about it. You know, it's this organization who came to ask, uh, to ask me to work for free uh, for their initiative, their diversity initiative, was the same organization that said no to my venture fund a year and a half ago. So when you're asking me about how to invest into diverse founders, I don't told you how to do it. Right, I gave you an opportunity to invest into a venture fund that was led by people of color who has the pipeline. And now you want to build that pipeline. You don't have it because nobody trusts you. They're not in your network. And you're coming to me to ask for my pipeline now because you passed on the opportunity to invest in me. And, and they just don't see it. And that's the most frustrating thing. And there's nothing I can do. I can't waste my breath. I can't waste my energy except, you know, here with y'all. Right, but they just don't see it, and it's it's inexplicable to them. Right, there's nothing I can say to make them see it. That's not gonna make them be defensive, because even just asking how much are you gonna pay me shut down the conversation. And it's not just the friends and family thing; it's the fact that seventy percent of students from Harvard come from the top twenty percent nation's richest families, and that's the same at Stanford. It's the same at Yale. And where do VCs come from? They come from Harvard and they come from Stanford and Yale and Wharton and they're exclusive. And where do VCs invest? 90% of their investments come from inside their networks, people they went to school with, other VCs, other portfolio companies. So it's just the snake eating its tail. And there's almost no way to get in to those systems if you don't come from those systems of existing wealth. And it was built that way intentionally. And not only do 70% of, of students from Harvard uh, come from the, the nation's 20 uh, richest families, but with legacy admissions, it actually turns out that a third of the white students walking around Harvard wouldn't have met admission standards, but they're there at Harvard because their daddy wrote a check or their mama wrote a check or their daddy or their mom went to school there or they work as faculty, or maybe they're really good at playing lacrosse. Right, but one out of every three. So in the class of 2025, that's 415 students who were there that wouldn't be there if they tried to go through the front door and actually meet the admissions standards, the 3.9% that get admitted into Harvard, the lowest in the nation, they shouldn't be there. And isn't that the argument against affirmative action? Every single argument I've heard against affirmative action was, well, we can't do that because people who don't deserve it are gonna get, get something in place of those who do deserve it. How many of those 415 students on the list that got left out of Harvard deserved it more than that 
person whose dad wrote a check? How many of them? What if that was your kid? How would you feel about that? And on that note, we thank you for listening and ask that you click that like button and subscribe to Culture Crawl ATX wherever you listen to your podcast. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and heard something you can take back to your friends and family. Please follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn. And remember, you can always find the latest episodes on culturecrawlatx.com.